This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 83rd episode of the program. Today is February 24th, but before we get into the episode, first, I want to thank these individuals for deciding to join the independent progressive media revolution. First, we want to send a big thank you to Miley Castaldi, who sent in a donation from Australia. And then I want to thank Alexander Klein from Germany, who also sent in a donation. I also want to send a shout out to Richard Anderson Connolly. Uh, you can follow him at RJA Connolly on Twitter. Peter Petrov, Loretta Keane, Chris Wood, Jennifer McGilvery, Siwi Siang, Ryan Kleffas, and Kai McDougall. So all of these individuals decided to support the show either by becoming Patreon patrons, by signing up to be a member on humanistreport.com, or by simply donating to us via PayPal. Now, if you'd also like to support the Humanist Report and you like the show, you can do that by visiting the links down below, or there are a ton of ways that you can actually support the podcast for free. You can like our videos, you can share our videos, and just getting out the word goes a long way. And also, if you're so inclined, you can whitelist us on Adblock and deal with YouTube's annoying ads, but I mean, it is one way that you can support the program. So on today's episode, I will discuss CNN's Democratic leadership debate. I'll tell you my thoughts on who I thought performed the best. I'll talk about how DNC chair candidate Tom Perez has been soft on the big banks, Howard Dean's DNC chair endorsement, and I'll also tackle a recent wave of anti-transgender hysteria that was promoted on Bill Maher's show by Milo, and also by President Trump. I'll cover the backlash that Republican lawmakers are still receiving at town halls from constituents. Now additionally, I'll talk about how a filmmaker was blacklisted by MSNBC once he became a Bernie Sanders surrogate. In addition to corporate media, I'll talk about corporate Democrats. I'll also discuss how Joe Manchin threw Bernie Sanders under a bus at a recent town hall event to save face. And finally, I'll discuss how the EPA chief is connected to the oil and gas industry and how pharmaceutical companies are gouging people that depend on life-saving drugs. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump in. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Over this weekend, members of the DNC will be convening to determine who the next DNC chair will be. Now, with that being said, prior to this event, CNN hosted a Democratic leadership debate. And during this debate, I felt really conflicted, which is basically how I felt with the last debate, because there were times where I cheered on all of the candidates and I felt as though on most questions, their answers were sufficient. But there were a lot of times where I felt disappointed in the candidates as well. But I mean, just generally speaking, I thought that all of them were great when it comes to the issue of voter ID laws, sanctuary cities, standing up for transgender rights and combating the harmful agenda of Trump. And I like how they discussed how redistricting in 2020 needs to be a priority. This is absolutely true. So I agree with all of these things. But just generally speaking, there were times that I was really discouraged during the debate for a number of reasons. There was a portion of it that was dedicated to this notion of a progressive purity test and whether or not the next DNC chair would support primary challengers to incumbent Democrats who are too corporatist, who side with Donald Trump on too many issues like Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill. Uh, and the first person who got this question was Tom Perez. And of course, he used his typical wishy-washy platitude response. Ten 
Senate Democrats are running for re-election in red states, states that, uh, that, that Donald Trump won. One of them is Claire McCaskill. She voted to confirm a handful of President Trump's nominees, and she says she's worried that she might have a primary challenge because critics, in her words, don't think she's pure. Is this notion of a purity test healthy for the Democratic Party? Well, I was in St. Louis last night, and I'll tell you, Claire McCaskill I, has a, an immense amount of, of support there. And the way we're going to take back the Senate, the way we're going to take back the House, the way we're going to take back state houses is to get back to basics. That's what we need to do as a party. We have to make house calls. We have to have a 12-month-a-year organizing presence. Now, since he completely dodged the question that time, she asked him the question again, and he very tepidly endorsed the notion that he would remain neutral as the next DNC chair. If you're the DNC chair and there are challenges from the left to incumbent Democrats, will you support that? Will you cheer them on? Or well, do you think I mean, that's the, a mistake? I think the role of the DNC chair is to let the process run its course. And then we move forward, you know, when the uh, general election moves uh, moves ahead. So, I mean, as long as the next DNC chair is pledging to remain neutral, I'm fine with that. I have no qualms with that. It's literally in the DNC charter. That's why we were against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, because she violated the DNC's own charter, specifically Article 5, Section 4. Look it up. The DNC chair has to remain neutral. And the job of the DNC chair, they're supposed to facilitate a competition between an incumbent Democrat and a primary challenger. That's fair. They're supposed to facilitate fair and balanced elections. They're not supposed to take a position. They're just supposed to be neutral. But I mean, with Tom Perez, his response, it, it didn't really assure me that he would be neutral, although he did indicate, to be fair to him, that he would remain neutral. Now, if you're going to be neutral, just come out and say it unequivocally. Yes, I will be neutral. We're not asking you to rig the next primary or primaries across the country uh, in favor of progressives. We just want neutrality. We want a fair race between candidates. Now, Keith Ellison came out and did unequivocally state that he would remain neutral because, of course, it's not really the job of the DNC chair to comment on races when it comes to the Senate and House of Representatives and presidential races, certainly. So he just said, look, I will be neutral, but he then pulled a Tom Perez and pivoted to Donald Trump. The role of the DNC is to be neutral and fair to all primary cont contestants. I will call... I will make a personal call and say, let's not kill each other off, guys, you know? But I will not publicly shame any Democrat in a primary. It's going to be neutral and fair if I'm the chair. But let me just say this. Donald Trump, as deceptive as he was, did say he was for jobs, trade, infrastructure, and protecting Social Security. That's our message. We all know Donald Trump is a bad guy. But as DNC chair, I don't want you to focus exclusively on Donald Trump. You need to get the message out there. You need to reform the Democratic Party because the reason why Trump and the Republicans are in power is because Democrats don't have a message to send to working class voters. You lost. So you have to be introspective and look within and determine what the DNC has been doing wrong for so many years if you ever want to defeat Donald Trump and the Republicans. So sure, focus on Donald Trump, but you need to coordinate outreach to the grassroots and whatnot. Now, thankfully, most candidates have indicated that they're going to do that. But overall, I thought that the response on this question from Tom Perez and Keith Ellison was inadequate. Now, if you thought that these two responses were lackluster, you're going to be ecstatic about them and think that they were perfect once you hear what Jamie Harrison had to say in response to this question. So if Democrats want to be in a permanent minority, let's spend all of our time and energy fighting each other. 
But if we want to actually fight back against Donald Trump, let's spend our energy going after Ted Cruz. Let's spend our energy going after the Republicans that are up. We don't have the time, the energy, and all of the people that we are fighting for each and every day don't have the time for these purity tests. So clearly he was not too keen on the idea of progressives primarying incumbent Democrats. And this was a really startling answer to me because he's communicating to me that he thinks that primary challengers are divisive. And this is what we saw during the primaries when Bernie Sanders dared to challenge Hillary Clinton, who everyone had basically already anointed as the uh, Democratic Party's nominee. Primaries are not divisive. They give voters a chance to choose the best Democrat to go up against the Republican. So, I mean, if you really want to make sure that Republicans don't win back any more states, then you need to have fair primaries so that way the best candidate will win. The reason why Democrats are in minority status to begin with is because they're too corporatist and because they weren't challenged. Jamie Harrison is really telling me that he's going to do the same thing and he's going to try to tip the scales in favor of incumbent Democrats. That's not your job as DNC chair. You're supposed to remain neutral and make sure the competition is fair. So this was really scary, but thankfully we just learned that Jamie dropped out of the race and surprise, surprise, he endorsed Tom Perez, the establishment's pick. And good riddance, because we don't need to have another DNC chair that refuses to be neutral. All you're supposed to do is be fair. And you know what? Debbie Wasserman Schultz wasn't fair. And if we get another DNC chair that chooses not to be fair to progressives, the party is going to be even more damaged. Their credibility will be even more damaged than it already is. Now, moving on to the next portion of the debate, they talked about whether or not the primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton was rigged and whether or not Debbie Wasserman Schultz tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton. Now, Tom Perez got this question first because he recently flip-flopped and said, you know, I think that Bernie Sanders supporters, we heard them loud and cl- loud and clear. They claimed that the primary was rigged, and it was. And then just hours later, he flip-flopped and said that Hillary Clinton won fair and square. Here was his response when he was questioned about this. Which is it? Well, you know, here's, here, here are the facts. Hillary Clinton won the Democratic primary. Hillary Clinton also won the uh, popular vote. At the same time, because of the absence of transparency in the Democratic primary, there was a crisis of trust that ensued. And that's why the leader of the DNC needs to make sure that we are investing in transparency. Hold on a second, Secretary, Secretary, 10 seconds. Was it rigged or not? Again, the process, uh, because of the absence of transparency, it created that crisis of relevance and it created the distrust So that was a terrible answer. Thankfully, Sam Ronan swooped in and just killed this question like I expected him to do. But towards the end of the next segment that I'm going to play for you, Pete Buttigieg decided to chime in, and he really thought that he was saying something profound, but what he was saying was a cop-out. Not only was the primary rigged, it was also rigged all across the country because the DNC has never allowed outsiders or brand new people to rise through the ranks. It has always been an insider game, and it has been that way for a very, very long time. That is where that lack of trust has come into play, because not only was Bernie Sanders snubbed, not only did it look like Hillary Clinton had bought or muscled her way into it, then those supporters were denied a chance to speak at the convention, and that was the final straw. If people don't have a voice, an equitable voice, like I alluded to earlier, then people are not going to trust the system, and they are going to go out of their way to break it. Secretary Perez, is Mr. Ronan wrong? Well, again, you know, we need every single day 
as the leader of the Labor Department, the leader of the Civil Rights Division, and I hope to be the leader of the Democratic Party. We have to do everything in a transparent fashion. And when you do that, you earn trust. Trust isn't something you're given. Look, I would it's like something to say you're that. Earned. This I think that's a long way of saying the Democratic no. Party. Well, why, Mr. Mayor, why? This is why I got motivated to get into this. We can't allow this to devolve into factional struggle. Of course there were problems with 2016. Nobody could say that there weren't. But I didn't love living through the 2016 primary the first time. I don't know we as a party, why we as a party would want to live through it a second time. We've got to look forward, not back. I absolutely hated that answer from Butt Geek. I thought it was a complete cop-out, and he's choosing once again that he would rather bury his head in the sand rather than actually face the problems and the mistakes that the Democratic Party has made. We're never going to move forward unless the Democratic Party can be introspective and reflect at what they did wrong in 2016. Because if you don't acknowledge that you made mistakes, then you're never going to learn from those mistakes. And furthermore, how can you talk about the DNC cultivating trust when they're refusing to acknowledge that there's a problem that we all see? You're basically telling us that we're all delusional. But yet, time and again, but gig indicates to us that he wants to ignore the issue. You know, he says, why would we want to talk about the 2016 primary? I want to move on from that. Well, I'm not going to move on with that with you, with the party, if you're going to do the same thing to me again. And I don't have assurance from the DNC that they are not going to rig the primary and, you know, House and Senate races against progressives. So unless you do something to rebuild that trust that you lost, I'm not coming back to the party. I registered as an independent specifically because of what Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the DNC did to Bernie Sanders. You're not doing anything to win me back. Now, thankfully, Sally Boynton-Brown had a surprisingly good response to Pete Buttigieg. There are more independents than there are registered party people, and those independents want a place to play in the primary system. And so you have a system that's been in place as... Sam said, that's no longer serving the people in our country. I talk a lot about new power. If you haven't heard me, you can go to thisisnewpower.com. And this is what the people in our country are demanding our systems mm. go towards. Something that's collaborative, something that's truly inclusive, and something that's transparent. And it's an issue that has to be dealt with. We cannot just throw it under the rug and right. say we've got to move forward in but the future. We've got Brown, to fix thank you. Now, overall, I expected almost all of the candidates, to have a terrible response to this question, with the exception of Sam Ronan. However, I think that Keith Ellison probably had the worst response, and this isn't objectively speaking. This is just because I really expected more from Keith Ellison, given that he endorsed Bernie Sanders, and the same tactics that the DNC and establishment insiders used to smear Bernie Sanders, well, they've used it against Keith Ellison in this race. At the same debate, he was asked whether or not he was an anti-Semite. So, this is the same thing that Bernie Sanders had to go through. He was asked whether or not he was sexist and whether or not he was belittling Hillary Clinton uh, because he had misogynistic tendencies. And yet, this is what Keith Ellison had the audacity to say. How do you move forward if you don't own the past? Well, D Donna Brazil went to the Bernie supporters and she did issue an apology. That happened. Now we have a unity commission, which is going to be appointed by somebody in this group. And I think we absolutely have to make sure that in the future, every person who wants to vote for a Democrat must feel that it was fair, open, and accessible, and transparent. That is a mission, but I'm telling you, the real problem is ahead of us. People are organizing in the street right now. I believe I'm the unity candidate in this race because I supported both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And I believe I can pull the people together so that we can come together as a party and we can win elections so that we don't ever have to go through this thing 
anymore. Donald Trump is wreaking havoc on the American people, and the Democratic Party has to be the agent of the American people, not an agent unto itself. And so I believe we have to move this thing forward and not engage in the ruinous who shot John. We got to come together, people, and fight the real enemy. That's the real deal. I was repulsed by that response from Keith Ellison. I thought that, of all people, Keith Ellison is the one who should speak out against the rigged primary, but I know that he's trying to walk a fine line and pander to the establishment and the progressive wing of the party. And look, I still support Keith Ellison to a degree, although Sam Ronan is my first choice. But, I mean, come on, Keith. You, you're running away from facts because you don't want to make waves throughout the party. And look, he says that Donna Brazil apologized. Well, if she apologized, I didn't get the memo. Did you get the memo? I think most progressives don't know that Donna Brazil apologized. We're never going to move forward, Keith, unless progressives can trust the DNC again. And if you run away from what they did, and if you run away from the mistakes that they made, you're never going to get that trust back. So tread carefully here. Because if you try to tell progressives that we're just crazy and we're imagining this bias against Bernie Sanders, you're never going to win us back. Now, Jamie Harrison also decided to chime in on this discussion, and he really tried to boil this debate of the rigged primary down to semantics. And what he did was really sleazy. For a, a, a number of folks, they do believe uh, they use the terminology rigged. Now, one of the things I, I I'm a lawyer. What is the definition of rigged? Are we saying <coughs> that voting machines were rigged for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Sam, is that what you're saying? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is the system in of itself well, is right. in exclusive to just the people in charge. No, That's but, the but, problem. But when we say, an, we election, right. when we say, when we say an election is rigged, in the minds of folks, people are stealing somebody's vote and giving it to somebody else. Language is very, very important in us. We're talking about the rules that were crafted at the behest of Hillary Clinton in coordination with Hillary Clinton to favor her, to tip the scales in favor of her against all of her primary challengers. We all did not want Debbie Wasserman Schultz to oversee the primary because she was Hillary Clinton's campaign co-chair in 2008. So obviously, she favors Hillary Clinton. There's a massive conflict of interest. And then we start hearing stories from time that she's colluding with Hillary Clinton to create roles like the exclusivity clause and limit debates. So that way, Hillary Clinton can maintain her huge lead and none of her primary opponents would ever have a chance. And she created this exclusivity clause so that way if candidates didn't like the debate schedule, uh, they couldn't go to CNN and petition them for a debate. If the DNC did not sanction a debate, they were banned from future DNC-sanctioned debates. It was ridiculous. So you can't look us in the face and seriously tell us that the primary wasn't rigged. I think we're past this discussion. The primary was rigged. The rules favored Hillary Clinton disproportionately. And if you disagree with that, if you disagree with the emails that revealed how Debbie Wasserman Schultz tried to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign, she tried to undermine him at every step of the way, you're being disingenuous and you're a liar. Now, Sam Ronan responded to Jamie Harris, and then uh, this whole discussion got even worse when Jammu Green chimed in, and her response almost made my head explode. I'm not joking. It's the superdelegate system. It's the closed primaries. It's people not knowing how the system works. Go to Democrats.org and try and find out who the chairman are. Find out who your county chairs are. The system in of itself is not transparent. I've been saying that since day one. Hold on, Jim Green. I want to bring you in on this issue of superdelegates. Uh, do you think their time has passed? Is there a better way? And if so, what? First... Every Democrat and most Americans, because we did win the popular vote, know which election was rigged. Period. Amen. To the superdelegate issue, 
We do have Hold this on, transformative what, is that, what does that mean? What does that mean that the election was rigged? Are you saying if that the there president was did not one win the election? vote that was influenced by Russian meddling that was cheerleaded on by this man in the White House, then that election was influenced by a foreign government. That was soul crushing to watch. Because think about what she's saying and how stupid it is. She's saying that Russia tipped the scales in favor of Donald Trump by revealing how the DNC tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton. So it was a rigged general election to expose how the primaries were in fact rigged. That makes no sense whatsoever, Jammu. So, I mean, if the DNC is exposed as being undemocratic, that's meddling. But moving red states up on the primary map to benefit Hillary Clinton, her lobbying superdelegates and effectively buying them off, that's not meddling. But letting the public know that the DNC was doing all that stuff, that's meddling. Now, to be fair to Jammu here, she did say that she would ban superdelegates, but... You know, I'm starting to realize that when she tries to speak kindly to Bernie Sanders supporters, she's just pandering. There's no substance to what she's saying because she recited the same thing she said last week, almost word for word. Has I to acknowledge, acknowledge the wounds of that the Bernie, Bernie Sanders supporters who have. feel, and, and I have also, to also acknowledge the wounds of Hillary Clinton supporters Hillary who feel that sexism and misogyny has been too rampant in our party. So I don't believe anything that she's saying. And look, Jammu, you said that you wanted to come on the show you claimed that you would be happy to answer any of my questions and then you implied that you know i was ignoring you and when i responded you ignored me so you clearly don't want to answer any of my questions so you talk a big game but you don't walk the walk and we don't believe you jemu but thankfully you know you're probably not going to win so on this issue of the primary being rigged i think all the candidates with the exception of sam ronan get an f because they all failed. Now, moving on, there were other interesting points in the debate. Now, first, Tom Perez was really backed into a corner when he was asked about his support for the TPP. While you were Labor Secretary, you supported and defended TPP. So why would you be the right messenger to bring working class voters back to the Democratic Party? Well, you know, I think implicit in that question is Tom's not a progressive. And you know what? I take a backseat to no one in what I accomplished at the Labor Department. We fought for increasing the minimum wage. We implemented an overtime rule. We, we, we attacked the issue of retirement security. I'm proud of the fact that the head of the AFL-CIO called me the uh, you know, best labor secretary since Francis Perkins. So I moved forward. And I was part of Team Obama. And I'm damn proud of being part of Team Obama. And when you're part of a team, you don't go to the buffet line and say, I'm going to play here or play there. Now, if you couldn't tell, he really didn't want to answer the question. Circle back to the initial question on trade. Can you said, you said, quote, trade agreements like the TPP are critical to our 21st century competitiveness. Now, I mean, Do you stand Dana, by that now? Dana, TPP is dead. It's been dead since you know, uh, last August or September. That was probably one of the most damaging moments to him during the debate, but there were also some moments where Keith Ellison took some damage pretty hard. So he was asked about a previous statement that he said on Bill Maher's show, where he talked about uh, the Second Amendment and gun control, and they claimed that he agreed with the notion that Democrats should come out against the Second Amendment. Uh, and he said that he was taken out of context. So here's what they said during the debate. And he, uh, after that, I'll follow up with the clip of Keith Ellison's appearance on Bill Maher so you can decide. Bill Maher, then why doesn't your party come out against the Second Amendment? It's the problem. 
your response. I sure wish they would. I sure wish they would. No, that was a if you, I wish you'd play the tape, because if you did, uh, you'd see that it did not go that way. Why okay. doesn't your party come out against the Second Amendment? Bill, I, well, I sure wish they would. I sure wish Really? Would. Because I never yeah. hear anybody in the Democratic Party say that. What no, they you say know, is, I am also a strong supporter. You got to check out the Progressive well, Caucus. We have come out very strong for common sense gun safety rules. Common we sense have, gun safety is bullshit. It's not. What that means... No, it isn't. No, it is. No. It means that there are 3,000 types of guns available in the U.S., and you want to ban about 200 of them. I kind of agree that he was taken out of context because when he said, I wish they would, um, the lady next to him was talking. So I don't know if he was responding to her. And then immediately after Bill Maher said that, he began to talk about how moderate gun control is preferable and how it's not stupid and how they shouldn't come out against the Second Amendment. So I'm kind of torn on this. I don't necessarily know. I think it's difficult to determine uh, in the, the appropriate context, what he was talking about, but I don't believe that Keith Ellison is against the Second Amendment at all. Uh, however, I think this is still going to hurt him pretty badly. Now, there was also a moment in the debate where both Keith Ellison and Tom Perez looked really shitty because they chose to go to a donor retreat sponsored by David Brock with billionaires instead of attend the Women's March. We were all at the donor summit, the other candidates. And you know what? The first, I, I know people. This you is pointed not, that out. This is not good. I, mean, I, I wasn't. I, I mean, this is part of it. Right? You know, conversation. Uh, no, Chris, yeah. let's, let's, we, I'm yeah. happy to talk about yeah, this. Yeah. Because the first thing I said was, you know, this is a tone deaf conference because I would rather, my first words down there, I'd rather be in Washington. So Tom Perez's response was incredibly embarrassing. Oh, I wish I could be there, believe me. But Keith Ellison didn't do any better. I mean, look, we all go to marches all the time. This idea that, you know, one person went to one march one day and that's some big deal. It's not. The truth is we got to re some people got to rebuild the party. Some, some people, people need to march. Twice. All of us need to create a new America where everybody's included. If rebuilding the Democratic Party involves getting cozy with billionaire donors and David Brock, someone who runs multiple super PACs, then you're not going to rebuild the Democratic Party, Keith. You're going to further destroy the party. Now, when it comes to the issue of donors, Tom Perez was really disingenuous, and he tried to muddy the waters when it comes to the issue of banning lobbyists um, from having a say over the affairs of the DNC. I have a friend who couldn't work in the Obama administration for two years because he was a lobbyist with one client, the campaign for tobacco-free kids. I have um, other friends in the union movement who are lobbyists. So are we going to say we're going to take no money from unions? I have other friends who used to be lobbyists, and they deregistered, and now they're public policy specialists, and they're doing lobbying. It quacks like a duck. It acts like a duck. Okay, this is so frustrating to me because when we say we want to ban lobbyist contributions, Perez knows who we're talking about. We're talking about Big Pharma. We're talking about payday lenders that bought off the last DNC chair and made her team up with Republicans to fight for these predatory payday lenders that rip off poor people. So you know what we're talking about. Now, with that being said, there was a lot of negative aspects to the debate, but there were some good moments. And this came when uh, Sam Ronan talked about getting money out of politics. We need to get money out of politics. I mean, quite frankly, the biggest concern I have ran across among people, uh, not just in social media, but I've ran across in person, is they feel their voice is being drowned out by the almighty dollar. So how do you fix this? You get rid of money. Now, I was really happy when Sally Boynton Brown reiterated the same exact sentiment. We have to get 
the money out of politics so that we have elected officials who actually re reflect you. our people. And the party's got to take a stand on that. Thank so, I mean, in the end, the debate, you know, even though on most topics the candidates were good, and I'm kind of giving you the impression that they're all terrible, on some issues that are really important, like the purity test, um, like rigging of the primary, I think that they really didn't meet the mark with the exception of Sam Ronan, who I think performed consistently, although he didn't get enough time. So let me leave you with Sam Ronan's remarks, which I think show why he is the best DNC chair candidate. The issue is we need to bring everyone back together. That's why in Baltimore I talked about the new, new deal, because when we were the party of FDR and we had something to fight for, to build together upon, we were the greatest nation on earth. We had the strongest middle class. We were growing for decades. And then we got into bed with big business. Thank and you. And look at where we are today. Thank you. So the Democratic Party establishment does not realize the fact that corporate Democrats who are too soft on big banks or who are just outright friendly with big banks like Hillary Clinton, they are the downfall of the Democratic Party. Now, with the DNC chair election upon us, it's very possible that the Democratic Party could go in the same failed direction again if they choose Tom Perez, who, during his tenure at the Justice Department and as Labor Secretary, he was soft on big banks. So according to The Intercept, Tom Perez, a leading candidate for the Democratic National Committee chairmanship, has an established record of not taking on the banks, both at the Department of Justice and the Department of Labor. So during his tenure at the Justice Department, he had jurisdiction over the division of the Department of Justice that prosecutes violations of the Service Members Civil Relief Act. Now, the SCRA was first enacted during the Civil War and is designed to cap interest rates that prevent foreclosures for active duty troops. Violations can potentially be charged as misdemeanors, punishable by up to one year in prison. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase actually violated this law by foreclosing on active duty soldiers, and as a result, there were soldiers that actually committed suicide. So, some lawmakers actually suggested that this was an act of homicide by the bank. Now, while Chase was forced to pay damages to some of the soldiers who they illegally foreclosed on, none of them went to jail. No bankers at J.P. Morgan Chase went to jail. Now again, Tom Perez was the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights from 2009 to 2013, and when the big banks broke the law under his tenure, they were not held accountable. Now when it comes to his tenure as Labor Secretary, Perez left justice to become Secretary of Labor in 2013. The Department of Labor has significant bank regulatory authority involving pension funds. Financial institutions found guilty of certain crimes, for instance, are barred from managing pensions unless granted waivers by the Department of Labor. In 2015, Democratic Representative Maxine Waters asked Perez to hold off such a waiver for large banks that had pled guilty to conspiring to rig the foreign exchange markets, but UBS, Barclays, JP Morgan, Royal Bank of Scotland Group, and Citigroup received waivers, letting them go right back to managing pension money. Perez's track record at the Department of Labor was generally respected by unions, a bulwark of the Democratic Party, although union density overall dropped during the Obama administration. For example, Perez implemented a conflict of interest rule to stop financial advisors from cheating people. He adopted a regulation to help more people earn overtime. He advocated for a 
rule for home care workers to aid their bargaining leverage. But all of that is likely to be overturned because Democrats lost up and down the ballot in 2016, handicapped in part by their aversion to take on the banks. Both Perez and Ellison support pro-labor policies, but Ellison shows that he also wants to oppose concentrated financial power. Perez represents the finance-friendly status quo that has relegated Democrats to minority status. Now, I think that even though Tom Perez did do some good things uh, for labor, to say that he's pro-labor is a little bit of a stretch because he lobbied for the TPP while he was labor secretary. Unions did not want the TPP to go through, and working class voters, by and large, were against the TPP, hence why they switched from Obama in 2012 to Trump in 2016 because he was against the TPP unequivocally. And with Hillary Clinton, she claimed to be against the TPP, but I mean, she lobbied for it 45 times as secretary of state. So this was a big issue. Yet, Tom Perez was in favor of the TPP, and this was at the behest of President Obama's donors. So, I don't necessarily agree with the notion that he's super pro-labor. Giving us, you know, throwing us a bone here and there, that doesn't make you pro-labor. If you're going to be pro-labor, you need to be pro-labor through and through. Now, I'm not saying, again, that we have to uh, administer a purity test, but I mean, the TPP is a pretty big deal, let's face it. If you're not against the TPP, I just can't see how you can be considered pro-labor. Now, the thing is that Tom Perez is from the same failed corporate Democratic establishment that lost. He's from the Hillary Clinton wing of the party, and Bernie or Busters, progressives, Dem exiters, did not come out to support Hillary Clinton. Her own base did not mobilize to support her. So if you put someone from that wing of the party who already lost up and make them the party leader, well, you're going for the same failed status quo approach, but you can't tell them that Tom Perez is part of the same failed status quo approach. They don't want to hear it. Now, the problem with Tom Perez also is that he's just divisive. So the Huffington Post explains, Keith Ellison had incredible support from the quote-unquote establishment side of the party, the progressive side of the party, and the grassroots and elected officials. Nobody was clamoring for another entrance, and yet we got one foisted upon us, said Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works, an organization fighting to expand Social Security benefits. If Tom Perez were to win, the message that would send to the grassroots, to labor unions that endorsed Ellison before Tom Perez joined the race, is that their voices, their muscle, their enthusiasm and turnout doesn't matter, Lawson added. And that's absolutely true. I mean, you had someone like Keith Ellison who had overwhelming support from all wings of the party, and then all of a sudden, they don't like the prospect of someone from the Bernie wing getting control of the party, so they have to push forward someone who wasn't even planning to run. But Obama pushed Tom Perez forward and wanted him to be the new DNC chair because he did not want Bernie Sanders or his wing of the party taking over. And again, this will be their downfall because what what is it that the Bernie Sanders wing of the party wants? We want a single-payer healthcare system. We want the emphasis to be on voters rather than the, the Democratic Party's donors. We want them to get money out of politics. So the fact that you don't want us to take over the party when... Those are the things that we're advocating for. It really shows that you're on the wrong side of history here. So look, if Tom Perez uh, wins, this would be horrible for the party. Uh, and it would be horrible for everyone in the country because that means that Democrats would continue to be handicapped by inept, incompetent Democrats that proved that they, they lost. And Donald Trump will win again in 2020. So I mean, if they choose Tom Perez, I'll be upset, but not too surprised, honestly. 
Former DNC chair Howard Dean decided to weigh in in the DNC chair race, and he finally made an endorsement. Now, seeing that he's from the establishment wing of the Democratic Party, and he's currently a lobbyist, one would think that he would go for the establishment's favorite candidate, which is Tom Perez. However, he decided to go in a different direction, and he thinks that the best choice would be Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Here's what he had to say about Pete. Pete is a South Bend, Indiana mayor, 36 years old, two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Most important thing, he's the outside the beltway candidate. This party is in trouble. Uh, our strongest age group that votes for us is under 35, uh, and they don't consider themselves Democrats. They elected Barack Obama twice. They didn't elect Hillary Clinton, but voted 58% for her. Uh, they don't come out during the midterms. They don't come out for down-ballot voters. Our leadership is old and creaky, including me, and we've got to have this guy, 36 years old, running this party. And he, I had dinner with him last night. He is really, really capable and smart. He runs a city of 100,000 people. He's got 1,000 people in his workforce. He's what we need. So his reasoning is that Buttigieg is not only qualified, but the party itself is just too old and creaky, as he said. So I'll talk about that in a bit, but I want to get to why he didn't endorse Keith Ellison or Tom Perez. But they, you know, they represent certain interests inside the Democratic Party who are at odds with each other. Uh, the fact that neither one of them has locked this up by this time tells you something about uh, the, the nature of this race. I think it's time for an outsider. I think that he's completely missing the point here. When it comes to Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, he claims that they represent certain interests of the party. Now, what he's really talking about is certain wings of the party, and if you're really talking about special interests. Well, Tom Perez represents corporate interests, and Keith Ellison represents the grassroots wing of the party. Now, in endorsing but geek over President Ellison, he doesn't want to choose a side uh, when it comes to the warring wings of the party, the Hillary Clinton versus the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. But what he doesn't realize is that but geek is from the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. Not only does he refuse to address the rigged primary, uh, he also buries his head in the sand and refuses to acknowledge that the party is in fact divided. We're not united right now because the party screwed over progressives and we're not willing to come back to the party unless you apologize and acknowledge and, and assure us that that's not going to ever happen again. And furthermore, he endorsed Hillary Clinton during the primary over Bernie Sanders. So given the choice between a progressive like Bernie who's in favor of universal health care, tuition-free education at public colleges and universities, he chose to go with the Wall Street-financed corporate warmonger of a candidate. That doesn't make you very progressive. You are from the Hillary Clinton wing of the party. And furthermore, he's a very rehearsed politician, and he's talented. I'll give him that. I mean, before he got into the race, he said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to get into the race because I want to focus more on Indiana. I think that's really important. And then a week later, he launches Butt Gig for DNC. So, I mean, he's, he's a typical rehearsed, focus group-driven, poll-minded politician, and I don't think he's going to be the right choice. Uh, who's going to bring the party back together? I don't even think the party... We'll come back together if you choose anyone but Ellison or Ronan. So, you know, I think that Howard Dean is missing the point here. But he is from the Hillary wing of the party. So I reject Howard Dean's reasoning here. You're not going above the fray by choosing not to endorse one wing of the party over the other. You are endorsing the Hillary Clinton wing, and that's not surprising. You are the establishment. You used to be a true progressive until you sold out and started to take money uh, from special interests. So, you know, I reject his reasoning here, but he does reiterate ultimately why he chose butt gig over the other candidates. Our leadership is in their 60s and 70s, and the power in this party 
potential power in this party is under 35 years old. And, you know, if you want to change this party, you've got to have leadership that looks like the people you're going to change. So that, I think, is the real underlying reason why he's choosing to endorse Buttigieg over Ellison and Perez. He thinks that if you really want to attract millennial voters, then you need to have a millennial leading the party because Buttigieg is 35. Well, if you're going to apply that same reasoning to the same exact race, then why wouldn't you endorse Sam Ronan? Sam Ronan is, I believe, 27 years old. He's under 30. So wouldn't you go with him, someone who's even younger, who is saying something that resonates with progressives, who's actually speaking out and assuring progressives that he's not going to be like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and rig the primary again? Why wouldn't you endorse Sam Ronan? And furthermore, to say that age is a factor, it shows how out of touch he is. Look, I don't give a shit how old a candidate is. My favorite politician in the country is 74 years old. His name is Bernie Sanders. So I don't care if you're super old. I don't care if you're super young. What I care about are the policy positions that that candidate represents. I want someone who is going to vehemently advocate for healthcare as a right and push for a Medicare for all system. I want someone who is going to Talk about corporate welfare that we're giving to special interests, who's going to actually take a stand against war and pull out of the seven countries that we are currently bombing. So I don't, I couldn't care less about the age of the candidate, and it shows that Howard Dean has no idea how to talk to millennials or what we want. If millennials disproportionately flocked to the oldest candidate in the race, why would you think that picking someone younger would influence them to join the party? It just doesn't make sense, and it shows that Howard Dean is just clueless. So last week, Bill Maher had Milo Yiannopoulos on his show, and there was a lot of controversy surrounding his appearance because by having him on, critics alleged that you're kind of legitimizing the alt-right and giving them a platform, but I actually disagree with this notion because I do believe in political dialogue, and I think that it's important for us to expose ourselves to voices outside of our own eco chambers because that's how you grow. Uh, you know, that's how discussion in the country moves forward. And, you know, I disagree with a lot of liberals when it comes to the protests at college campuses uh, against Milo Yiannopoulos. I think that the UC Berkeley riot did more damage to the liberals than it did to Milo. So, you know, I'm in favor of free speech, and I wasn't against Milo's appearance. And really, I'll just say this. I A lot of people asked my opinion on Milo before, and I honestly... I didn't have a response because I didn't have much exposure exposure to Milo. I previously saw him on, I think, the David Pakman show for the first time when he was talking about Gamergate, and there was nothing really off-putting about him. Uh, but now that, you know, this is my first real exposure to him once he blew up, you know, he he was really pretentious. He tried too hard to be edgy, so I didn't like Milo, and I think that putting him on the show kind of exposed him, like Bill Maher argued. However, there was one moment in this uh, episode that really pissed me off, and I wasn't necessarily pissed off at Milo so much as I was just disappointed in Bill Maher because I would have expected better from him. Pronouns are so important. If you call Caitlyn Jenner he or a bad person. So yeah, this I did is it a, on the, purpose. You did. So this yeah, is a man I mis who... I misgendered you, right, this person. Right. So this is a man, born man, who, who wants thinks to... that he might be a girl. Okay. And, and you um, have a problem with that? No, I don't have a problem with it, but I think that women and, ch and, and girls should be protected from having people, who, men who are confused about their sexual identities in their bathrooms. That that's, person... That's not unreasonable. That person... Are you fucking kidding me? So, I mean, I expected that from Milo. I did not, however, expect Bill Maher to agree with this just 
quite frankly, stupid notion that transgender women pose a threat to women and children because they want to use the bathroom of their choice of the gender that they identify as. I think that's stupid, and I think that's a really harmful statement, and it's misinformation. They used the same argument against gay men. They said that, you know, we shouldn't be allowed in the same locker rooms as heterosexual men because we're going to be predators, and we're going to prey on them. They also claim that we're dangerous to children because we're going to try to recruit kids to be gay, so that way we have more people to date. I mean, it, it's just bullshit. And one part that also kind of rubbed me the wrong way was when Bill Maher implied that if you misgender someone, then, you know, you're kind of demonized and they, they call you a bad person if you don't refer to Caitlyn Jenner as a female. But nobody's doing that. And, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, he's an asshole. He says that he does it on purpose. Well, you're just being a dick. Why would you be a dick? Don't be a dick. You know, but I mean, to Bill Maher's point, I have someone who's transgender in my family, and I've misgendered this individual on multiple occasions. I correct myself, and we move on. Nobody tries to demonize me. Nobody tries to make me feel like a piece of shit. It's just a part of life. The reason why people are discriminatory against transgender people is for the same reason why they discriminate against gay people. It's because we violate gender norms. That's why we group in the LGBT community because if you're a man if you're born with a penis you're supposed to act masculine and be attracted to women if you're a woman you're supposed to act feminine and be attracted to men and if you violate those gender norms then you're kind of uh, demonized and marginalized and you have fucking milo yiannopoulos wearing a pearl necklace and he's sitting here talking about how other people are confused about their gender. Look, if you believe in freedom, then be consistent. Support the freedom of transgender people to identify as the gender that they want to. And, you know, to be fair to both of them here, they're not necessarily saying that they're against transgender people just unequivocally. What they're against is the fact that they prey on people uh, in bathrooms. They say that, you know, transgender women are really just men dressing up as women, so that way they can claim that they identify as a woman and then go creep on women and children in the bathrooms. But thankfully, uh, Larry Wilmore was there to actually dispel this false notion. So if you say, well, that person is weird or they want to do, commit sexual assault, then everybody thinks all transgender people want to do is commit sexual assault. Well, they are disproportionately involved in those kinds well, of crimes. I, they're what? Vastly disproportionately involved in sex crime. Uh, Who is? Yes, of Based course. What statistic? I, okay. I, I, I don't that's know. That's, I, I, not, that's not a controversial statistic. And it is a know, and frankly, statistic. And frankly, you know, you, you, you... So Milo said they are vastly disproportionately involved in those kinds of crimes. It's not a controversial statistic. And Bill Maher just shrugged. Really, Bill? That is a controversial statistic. When you actually Google cases of transgender bathroom predators, you're going to find more articles debunking it as a myth than actual instances of sexual assault. But let's really be kind to Milo here. So the Conservative Liberty Council, they created a definitive list of sexual assaults that transgender people have committed. Now, in total, they only name 50 instances of alleged sexual assault, and these include sexual assaults from around the world, not just in the United States. And nearly all of these incidents on this list don't actually describe sexual assaults. So, for example, number 41 here links to an article about a transgender prisoner in the UK that won the right to be female in a female prison. No mention of sexual assault. You have another article where a sexual assault victim spoke out against a policy that allowed transgender people to use bathrooms as the gender that they identify as. No mention of sexual assault. And then when you get to the alleged creepers here, many of these stories discuss people who didn't like the fact that they had to share a bathroom with someone that was transgender and they spoke out against it. 
Again, that is not an instance of sexual assault. That's just people who hate transgender people saying that they don't feel comfortable using the bathroom with someone who is identifying as the gender that doesn't coordinate with their birth sex. And I mean, when you actually get to the cases of groping or where someone exposes themselves uh, to another individual, well, they're referring to someone in many cases that just wore one article of women's clothing or they were cross-dressing. That's not the same thing as someone who is transgender. So, I mean, when you really narrow down the list to legitimate instances of sexual assault by someone who's legitimately transgender, you probably end up with less than 10 worldwide. What an epidemic we have on our hands here. Wow. But yet, Milo claims that this isn't a controversial statistic and Bill Maher just shrugged. I mean, look, if you want to be a creeper, if you want to prey on women and children in the bathroom, I think there are a lot easier ways to do it. Why would you go through the hassle of getting breast augmentation surgery, changing your gender legally so that way you have an ID, so that way if somebody questions you, you can say, look, no, I identify as a woman. Why would you, you buy women's clothing? Why would you do all of this just so that way you can go watch women take a dump in the bathroom? It doesn't make sense to me. Sexual predators are just going to be sexual predators regardless. They're not going to go through all this work to become transgender, to to prey on women and even if we be extra kind to milo here and we grant him not just all 50 of those cases but let's say 100 cases occurred uh in the united states that still is a statistically insignificant amount of sexual assaults committed by transgender people so you're trying to create this hysteria about transgender people who just want to use the bathroom like everyone else and look quite frankly i'd be more creeped out by sharing a bathroom with milo than i would with any transgender person but that doesn't mean i could ban milo from using the bathroom so what this is what milo is arguing for is a form of right-wing social justice warriorism I think I just created a word, but I mean, him and Bill, they talk about left-wing SJWs, but this is them being offended and triggered by a transgender person and having to share a bathroom with a transgender person when they have no legitimate reason to question the motives of transgender people. So you're a right-wing SJW, and Bill Maher doesn't acknowledge that even though left-wing SJWs are a threat, right-wing SJWs are more of a threat because they actually have political power. I'm talking about evangelical Christians who are a huge, significant portion of the electorate that actually vote, that has political power. SJWs are made fun of by people on the left and the right. Right-wing SJWs, they get to be triggered by stupid things like transgender people using the bathroom and nobody gives them shit for it. Members of the Democratic Party establishment that worked to undermine Bernie Sanders at every step of the way in 2016 and also who are just way too corporatist are starting to realize now that progressives are serious and the movement that was catalyzed by Bernie Sanders we're not going to go anywhere. And now they're starting to feel threatened because progressives will be challenging them in 2018 and 2020. And Senator Claire McCaskill decided to speak up about this because she's worried that her job is now in jeopardy. So The Hill explains, Senator Claire McCaskill on Thursday compared a faction of Democrats calling for their party to become increasingly progressive to the Tea Party movement that grew out of Republicans' opposition to Barack Obama. That wing of the party, McCaskill said on the Mark Reardon show in St. Louis could offer up a primary challenger to take on the two-term senator when she runs for re-election next year. I'm for sure going to run, McCaskill said, and I may have a primary because there is, in our party now, some of the same kind of enthusiasm at the base that the Republican Party had with the Tea Party. Many of these people are very impatient with me because they don't think I'm pure. For example, they think I should be voting against all of Trump's nominees, and of course, I'm judging each nominee on its own merit, she added. 
As of today, it's about half and half of the ones I voted no on and the ones I voted yes on, and I'm making an individual decision based on merit on each one, McCaskill said. That's not good enough for some of these folks who want me to just be against Trump everywhere. Uh, yeah, that's not good enough, because if I'm remembering correctly here, it was the Democratic Party establishment, people like Claire McCaskill, that fear-mongered against Donald Trump for months. They said you have to support Hillary Clinton because if you go with the weaker candidate like Bernie Sanders, well then we're going to be vulnerable and we could lose the country to a maniac like Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton, she just ran an anti-Trump campaign. So you guys fear-mongered for months about Donald Trump. And now that he's actually the president, you're not combating Donald Trump. You're not treating him like the threat that you claimed he was. And to this concept of her not being pure enough, look, I'm against purity tests, but it's not about you just being a pure progressive and being perfect. It's about you not being completely shitty. I mean, someone like Keith Ellison, he's a progressive, but he's not a perfect progressive. I think that when it comes to foreign policy, he has some really harmful policy positions, but on uh, domestic economic issues, I'm with him 100%. So I don't think that suggesting that we're trying to put you up to a purity test is actually correct. You need to realize that you're just corporatist, you're too centrist. And look, let's talk about Claire McCaskill and why we dislike her. When you look at the money that she's taken, well, look, she accepted $800,000 from the health industry. She took almost $60,000 from defense contractors, people who profit from war. She took $150,000 from the telecommunications industry. This includes companies like Verizon and Comcast, people who actually want to destroy the internet as we know it and roll back current net neutrality regulations. She took $161,000 from the insurance industry. I don't have to explain to you why this is problematic. She also took $170,000 from the finance industry, the big banks, the people who want to privatize social security. So when you say that you're not pure, it's not just that you're not pure. You don't have a couple of policy positions that we disagree with. You're just wrong for the party. You're supposed to be in a liberal party. But yet, politics in this country, it's all shifted so far to the right that Democrats, generally speaking, they're just right wing now. When you have people arguing in the Democratic Party, right wing talking points against the single payer healthcare system, you're just not right for the party. I'm sorry, Claire, and that includes you. Are you in favor of a single payer healthcare system? Do you support tuition free education at public colleges and universities? Do you support withdrawing our troops from all seven countries? that we are bombing right now? I mean, we talk about Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, but we're conducting drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya. I mean, how many countries do we have to bomb? How many terrorist states like Saudi Arabia do we have to arm and realize that they're committing war crimes in countries like Yemen? How much horrible things do we have to do that you're silent on before you speak out? So no, Claire, this isn't about, you know, uh, this purity test. It's not that you're not too pure. It's just that you're conservative and we don't like it. So when she talks about, you know, the fact that she might be primaried and that she's worried that her job is in jeopardy, she's right. She will be primaried, her job is in jeopardy, and progressives will do what we can to defeat Claire McCaskill. Sorry. Joe Manchin is a Senate Democrat that has recently become infamous because more so than any of his colleagues in the Senate, he's voted with Republicans to approve Donald Trump's harmful cabinet picks. Now, anticipating that his constituents would inevitably be pissed off, he actually called on Bernie Sanders to try to assuage the outrage that they're feeling, and he wanted them to uh, redirect their anger towards the real enemy, which is Donald Trump and the Republicans. But 
let's just talk about who you voted for real quick, Joe. So you voted to approve Scott Pruitt to lead the EPA. Scott Pruitt is funded by the oil and gas industry, and he's a climate change denier. You voted for that person to be the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. That's unbelievable. You voted for Jeff Sessions, a racist, to be the United States Attorney General. So these are things that are just incomprehensible to me. You have no shame. Now, at a town hall event, his constituents questioned why, as a superdelegate, he wasn't representing the interests of constituents. Uh, because, you know, if, if all 55 counties in West Virginia went to Bernie Sanders and they wanted Bernie Sanders, why would you undermine the people who you're supposed to be representing and vote for Hillary Clinton and endorse Hillary Clinton at the Democratic Convention? I mean, that still wouldn't uh, have made Bernie Sanders win, but you have to represent your constituents. Now, his response to this question and the backlash that he received for being culpable in putting forward the candidate that ultimately lost to Donald Trump, uh, he decided to throw Bernie Sanders under a bus. Well, I was, I was a committed delegate before that. Okay, so I already committed on that. Bernie's not a Democrat. Bernie won't yeah, register. He was Democrat. at the time. Bernie doesn't run as a Democrat. Bernie had to list himself as a Democrat because they wouldn't let him put socialists on the count, on, on the ballot. That's what Bernie, that's what Bernie wants to say. But all 55 counties, the, the West Virginia Democrats voted for Bernie Sanders. Right. I, mm -hmm. I committed before that. I'm saying I'm, I've committed as a delegate, superdelegate before that. To what? <laughs> well, I am, but I'm saying I already made a commitment. I already, already signed and made a commitment. That's what you said, you said I should have changed. But you could have, I mean, you yeah. weren't obligated to that. You could have changed Well, I still that. believe that Hillary Clinton would have been a much better candidate. I still, I voted for Hillary Clinton. It was not working I, for you. But you weren't well, necessarily, huh? repre but you weren't necessarily representing the, your constituency because. Oh, that there is a delegate. I was a super delegate. I wasn't a super delegate representing. I was a super delegate, so I represented what I thought and what I believed would be the best job. Unbelievable. He said Bernie's not a Democrat and he only chose to run as a Democrat because they wouldn't let him put socialist on the ballot. Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat because your party is too corporatist, your party is too corrupt, and he doesn't want to taint his own name by being associated with the corrosive Democratic Party brand. And Bernie Sanders did not choose to run as a Democrat because they wouldn't allow him to check socialists. Bernie Sanders ran as a Democrat because he wanted to make sure that the institutional biases that exist against third party candidates would not hinder his campaign. So it was a strategic move that I think was the right move. So this mentality is why you lost, because the Democratic Party, they try to demonize people who aren't Democrats, but what you're doing is you're undermining yourself because you're telling independent voters, who, mind you, make up the largest share of voters now, there are less registered Democrats and Republicans than independent voters. So you're telling independent voters you don't want them to be involved in the affairs of the party, when if you actually want to win, you should be welcoming independent voters with open arms. You should be welcoming Green Party and People Party voters with open arms, but you guys don't want to do that. Now his response was that, well, you know what, I already committed to Hillary Clinton, and I was a superdelegate that wasn't representing you guys, even though you elected me. I was representing who I thought would do the best job. So he continued to try to throw Bernie Sanders under a bus, and he tried to explain why he doesn't agree with Bernie Sanders. So he, he uh, used his tuition-free college plan as an example, and he said, you know what, I disagree with Bernie here because why not make students work for this? You know, why just give them free tuition? Why not make them work for it? But this just shows how out of touch he is because, Joe, 
we are working. We're working full time. I mean, when I finished my undergrad, I was working 35 hours a week. So if you try to tack on 12 or 20 more hours that I have to volunteer to get free tuition, you're overburdening us. You're making it so that way we're less successful in school. And that will diminish the prospects of us getting a good job if we do a shitty job in school. So you're out of touch. And when he moved on to single payer and he actually tried to demonize Bernie Sanders here, uh, his constituents were not having it. He wants single pay. Yes. 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 Let's go to Canada. Let's check Canada. Spend any time. Go up to Canada. Canada has basically more. If you, if you abuse it, you lose it. You lose health care in Canada if you abuse it. So make no mistake, it's not free. That means you have to show good, good stewardship. You have to go to your preventive classes. You have to keep yourself in a healthier lifestyle. Then you just can't have any MRI every time you walk in. You can't get all the stuff you can here. There's ration. They do ration. You can't get an MRI anytime you no, want. I know, but I'm well, let me just tell you what's Unless you have money. Have I've been waiting months to get an MRI. And I can't get one. Yeah. So make no mistake about it. Joe Manchin was using right-wing talking points against a policy, single-payer health care, that a majority of Democratic Party voters support. He said, uh, also, if you abuse it, you lose health care in Canada. So it's not really free. Well, Joe, you seem to ostensibly know a lot about the Canadian health care system. So I'm sure that you can answer this question. How many Canadians die or go bankrupt because they don't have health insurance? How many? The answer is zero. Zero, Joe. So you're making up lies about the Canadian healthcare system. Why? Because you are doing this at the behest of your donors. Joe Manchin is against single payer because throughout his career, he's accepted about $180,000 from the pharmaceutical industry. He took $175,000 from the insurance industry. He took $117,000 from health services and HMOs. He took $110,000 from hospitals and nursing homes. So Joe Manchin is looking out for himself because if we actually have a Medicare for all system, then these greedy health insurance companies go away and those health insurance companies you know they're friends to joe manchin because they donate to joe manchin uh and they help him get elected with this money so he doesn't want a single payer system because he wants the cash train to keep rolling in so i mean joe manchin doesn't want to do anything that would make it more difficult for him to get elected well listen up joe you will face a primary challenger in 2018 and progressives from around the country are going to pour money into his or her campaign. We're going to raise money the grassroots way while you take money from large corporations and we will make sure that we do everything in our power to make your primary challenger defeat you because you have gone on too long. Just run as a Republican. Nobody thinks that you're liberal. Nobody thinks that you're actually a Democrat. So why don't you join the party that you're cozy with? The Republicans. So look, we're going to try to defeat you. So uh, good luck, Joe, because you're going to need it. Josh Fox is a popular filmmaker that's also a vocal advocate for protecting the environment. He's been on MSNBC and CNN multiple times to talk about his opposition to oil pipelines and fracking. And he used to go on MSNBC almost weekly. And he explains that once he became a Bernie Sanders surrogate, well, mainstream media outlets began to treat him differently. I was a regular on MSNBC, I was a regular on Chris Faze's show. I would go on every couple of weeks. You know, this was just part of life as the me being able to talk about fracking and pipelines and these kinds of things, you know. And I love that. I love that about my life. I love being able to go on. I love to talk to Chris. I love to talk to 
uh, Larry O'Donnell and the other uh, people at the, uh, you know, Morning Joe or whatever it was, Alex Wagner, they would have me on all the time to talk about these issues. And then all of a sudden I became a Bernie Sanders surrogate and phone stop ringing, 100%. And I'm like, what's going on here? This is really weird. And then I put out a movie on climate change, uh, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, on HBO, touring the, the whole country, which I think is my best work. It was at Sundance Film Festival. And I'm not getting on MSNBC at all. Wow. And I call them up, and I said, what's going on? And then I started snooping in there. And as it turns out, there was definitely a blacklist at MSNBC. There was a, a real emphasis on making sure that Hillary Clinton was in the spotlight, that Bernie was downplayed. Uh, MSNBC ran the story um, that the primaries were over the night before the last primary, if you recall. <laughs> in California. That they said, oh, Hillary Clinton has won the nomination. You know, this is like, what is this, El Salvador? You're going to call the election the night before the election? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, where are we? 80, are we in Buenos Aires in 1982? Like, what's going on here? So, like, that was MSNBC. That was MSNBC. MSNBC was doing that. And it was very clear. Like, and in fact, the ultimate irony of the whole fucking episode is that when I'm putting out my movie, my movie premieres on HBO on the same night as Climate Week starts on MSNBC. Wow. And I don't get asked to go on and talk about the movie. My publicist was tearing her hair out. She's like, I have no idea what's going on. I do not know what's going on. Meanwhile, we went to the Internet. We went to Now This. We went to AJ Plus, and we got millions and tens of millions of views on short films about the film. And the film became one of the highest-rated uh, HBO premieres of the year. Mm-hmm. And we did it without television because we couldn't get on MSNBC. We couldn't get on, uh, aside from Jake Tapper, um, CNN. So, in fact, when Susan... When I wanted to, me to go on MSNBC, I had to call her and said, look, you know, I don't think they like me. They're going to have me on. You know? And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, just, just, just see what you can do. Just try, you know? So the day of, they're giving her all this stuff, heaven and hawing. No, we don't, we don't have enough time to have you and Josh on. We just want to have you on. And so Susan just did the, one of the most amazing and honorable and noble things that anyone's ever, ever done for me which is say no to them if they wouldn't put me on. She said, well, I'm not going on without, without wow. trust. Then fine. And no one has done that. You know, that's, that's a lot, you know, to turn down a TV appearance and stuff like, you know, just because of a friend, you know? That's cool. Because they're, they're doing a friend sort of wrong. So I end up having a conversation with them and talk to Chris. and Look, come on, let's patch it up. Let's have, let's have lunch. Let's talk these things through. And come on. So uh, hopefully we're going to have a lunch. Yeah. Hopefully I'll have lunch with Chris. And we'll start to see this. But the truth of the matter is, MSNBC is culpable in the election of Donald Trump. They are. Far more they are culpable oh, yeah. in, in giving the nomination to Hillary Clinton. They are culpable in journalistic malpractice, and they owe people an apology. And they're losing viewers because of it. So this, to me, I think is a bombshell. They blacklisted him because he was a Bernie Sanders surrogate. The mainstream media is supposed to report the facts. They're not supposed to have an agenda. And yet... You see them blacklisting people who dare to go against the political establishment. I want to read his quote. He said, there was definitely a blacklist on MSNBC. There was a real emphasis on making sure Hillary Clinton was in the spotlight that Bernie Sanders was downplayed. And CNN is also culpable because he said that they wouldn't allow him on too, with the exception of Jake Tapper. I mean, this isn't too surprising, honestly, but it's egregious nonetheless to actually hear it from someone 
This is sickening. MSNBC should be ashamed of themselves. How dare they call themselves a progressive network? We know that they are just the, the propaganda wing of the Democratic Party, and this really proves it right here. The Democratic establishment wanted Hillary Clinton, and anyone who got in the way, they tried to bulldoze, and MSNBC worked to do the bidding of the Democratic Party establishment. Well, then you're not a real media outlet. Media is supposed to be a check on government authority. That's why sometimes we refer to the media as the fourth branch of government, even though it's not technically an arm of government. It's supposed to be a check on government power. You weren't a check on government authority. You allowed this oligarch, Hillary Clinton, to be the center of attention because that's who the party establishment decided they would anoint as the Democratic Party nominee. It's ridiculous. And he said here, MSNBC is culpable in the election of Donald Trump. They are culpable in giving the nomination to Hillary Clinton. They are culpable in journalistic malpractice. And look, Bernie Sanders supporters, we were rightfully horrified at the fact that they were not covering Bernie Sanders nearly enough. I mean, this isn't just MSNBC, but CNN literally aired empty podiums of Donald Trump rather than covering actual rallies from Bernie Sanders. It, it was mind-blowing. They gave Donald Trump $2 billion in free media coverage, and they gave Bernie Sanders nothing. There was basically a blacklist, and now we're confirming that it wasn't just an effective blacklist. It was a literal blacklist of anyone who supported Bernie Sanders. And media has a lot of power in this country. They have agenda-setting power. They have the power to kill off a candidate by not covering him or her. So they don't even have to smear Bernie Sanders, even though they did do that whenever they infrequently covered him. But so long as they just ignore a candidate, that can kill off his or her campaign. And this isn't just my opinion. This is backed up by decades of political science research. So there's a study here that's widely cited by Dr. Chantal Iyengar, and Donald Kinder, and they basically found out that the media has three primary powers. They can set the government's agenda by covering certain topics. They can influence the criteria with which people evaluate information. So if they talk about something enough, like Benghazi, they can prime you and get you to think that this is the more salient issue than the other political issues. And they also can literally sway the outcomes of elections by legitimizing and delegitimizing candidates based on the level of coverage that they give to them. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but you can look up this study. If you uh, go to a university, your campus should have access to their study uh, that became a book later on. I'll link to the book in the description box. But this is why when Bernie Sanders supporters talk about Bernie Sanders getting coverage and we talk about there needing to be more debates, it's so that way the playing field was equal. And yet... Hillary Clinton supporters have the audacity to claim that we're crazy, that the primary wasn't rigged. Yeah, the primary was rigged, not only by the DNC, but the media, the corporate media establishment that was doing the bidding of their corporate donors who did not want Bernie Sanders to get in and rein them in. You know, this, when you consider that, you know, Josh Fox is totally right. They are culpable in the election of Donald Trump. And I hope that every pundit that pushed for Hillary Clinton at the behest of the Democratic Party establishment and tried to vilify and demonize Bernie Sanders and his supporters, I hope you feel guilty. So when you talk about Donald Trump, when you put pressure on Donald Trump, know that you are responsible for Donald Trump. So every week, I've been trying to highlight instances of constituents showing up to town halls of Republicans and just completely berating them. And I thought that initially this phenomenon would die down, but thankfully this is a recurring thing that's happening every single week. And the last I heard, these coal jobs are not coming back, and now these people 
people don't have the insurance they need because they're poor. And they work those coal mines and they're sick. The veterans are sick. The veterans are broken down. They're not getting what they need. If you can answer any of that, I'll sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> the notorious white nationalist is a special advisor to the President of the United States. I'd like to know your thoughts on that. First of all, I don't speak for the President. He only banned immigrants from countries that are either state sponsors of terror or that don't have. That's not true, well, sir. That's not true, sir. I I can debate. The facts are not disputed. You deny climate change. Do I deny climate change? No. The climate changes all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if it wasn't for Obamacare, we wouldn't be able to afford insurance. With all due respect, sir, you're the man that talked about the death panel. Uh -huh. yep. <laughs> We're going to create one great big death panel in this country that people can't afford to get insurance. Don't repeal Obamacare. Improve it. For And that compilation is just the videos that I was able to find. There were other Republicans that were lambasted during town halls that there simply aren't videos for, or that at least I could find. So this is something that is great, and I hope that this occurs whenever there is a town hall. Now, seeing that, you know, members of Congress, they have more visibility, you would think that this phenomenon would only occur with them. However, Republicans at state legislatures, they're getting held too. So according to Pink News, State Senator May Beavers and Representative Mark Pody from Tennessee were holding the meeting to inform the media of the details of the bill they had introduced. This bill sought to ban gay marriages in the state, which is hilarious because that's brazenly unconstitutional. However, after only two minutes, the pair were forced to abandon the conference and make for the door. Following them down the corridor, the protesters questioned what Miss Beavers and Mr. Pody were attempting to do. One added, some kind Christian you are. You won't allow someone else to have the same equal rights under God with you. So, I mean, this is just one of many examples of constituents across the country voicing how frustrated and just done with Republican bullshit they are. Because Republicans, they don't really have an agenda. They don't stand for anything. The only thing that they do when they actually take over government is they try to undo all the progress that we made, what little progress we made with the previous administration. They don't stand for anything and i think that people within the country you know regardless if republicans keep winning or not they're just done they're fed up now republicans they know that the heat is on the party knows that the heat is on and they're actually afraid of constituents so you have some of them who are just canceling town halls you have some that are not showing up you have some that are actually hiding and running away from constituents and having to leave through the back door of certain events so that way they don't get protested uh and i want to take a moment to acknowledge these cowards because i think that if you are willing to do shitty things but not face the music you should be shamed. So we have Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota. He is warning his constituents that he will 
cancel his town hall event if they yell at him or chant anything. And then we have Representative John Duncan of Tennessee who said that he's not going to attend any town hall event that would allow, quote, extremists, kooks, and radicals to shout at him. Great way to treat your constituents there. We also have Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado who canceled his town hall event completely because he just didn't want to deal with the backlash. And then Representative Tim Wahlberg of Michigan is refusing to meet with constituents just in general. And then my favorite here is Louis Gohmert of Texas who is refusing to go to town halls because he says that we're seeing a violent strain of liberalism and he actually said that he doesn't want to go because he's afraid that he's going to get shot. Now he is trying to demonize the people who are just participating in democracy. There's no need to be afraid of them, but I mean, if you are in that D.C. bubble, you begin to demonize your constituents because you don't talk to them. So I think that this is really embarrassing for him. And, you know, to talk about being afraid of getting shot, this is a guy who believes mentally ill people should be allowed to own guns. So maybe you should stop voting for laws that threaten others, Louie. So when you look at the videos of Republicans being lambasted by constituents, at least they showed up. I mean, Mitch McConnell, Joni Ernst, I despise these individuals, but at least they had the courage to face the noise. But you have these cowards who are refusing Refusing to show up because they don't like being questioned. They don't like that they're willing to do horrible things to the public and then uh, be questioned for it. I'm sorry, but if you are going to support policies that are anti-environment, that screw over the working class, then you will be called out for it. And look, constituents across the country, they're just fed up. So if you are willing to actually demonize them and call them extremists and imply that they're going to hurt you physically... You're just ridiculous. You're so out of touch. You should step down. Now, what frustrates me the most is that we have a president who is trying to imply that these are not real grassroots protesters. They're actually AstroTurf. So he tweeted that the so-called angry crowds in home districts of some Republicans are actually, in numerous cases, planned out by liberal activists. Sad. Wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Proved over and over again. Wrong. Actually so, I mean, what he's trying to do is plant the seed in your mind and get you to think, hmm, maybe these guys are uh, actually just paid protesters that are, you know, being funded by George Soros. No, it's just people across the country who are fed up with bullshit and... To say that, you know, oh, well, this is planned out by liberal activists. If liberal activists want to go and protest the uh, representative or senator that is supposed to be representing, uh, that's supposed to be representing them, don't they have a right to do that? It's called democracy, Trump. If you don't like it, then step down. Republicans, you're in control now. Your job is to govern. Your job is to represent the people. We live in a democratic republic, so we send you to D.C. so you could represent our interests and if you're not going to look out for us and you get lambasted for it that's your own fault maybe do something that benefits the working class the middle class do something that doesn't screw over the workers do something that will protect the environment and then when you show up to these town halls it'll be a little bit more pleasant for you Betsy DeVos is a right-wing evangelical billionaire who decided that, you know, rather than retiring and going to one of her many mansions or private islands, she decided that she wanted to get involved in politics. So the way that she got involved in politics is she bribed President Donald Trump with money and she got him to nominate her for the position of education secretary. She then bribed people in Congress and contributed to their campaigns so that way they would vote to confirm her as the education secretary. So she literally bought her job as the education secretary. She is the education secretary 
as a result of corruption. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, she's a dangerous figure because she has been a longtime advocate against public schools. So she is now, as Education Secretary, in charge of a sector of our society that she's against. And she got the job as a result of corruption. So, obviously, she is receiving a lot of backlash. Uh, and here's a video that you are going to enjoy. She does not represent anything that they stand for. Keep giving money to senators and buying your way to the position. You should be so proud of yourself. Go back. Shame. Shame. Shame! Shame! I, you know, I like to consider myself a really sympathetic person, but I have zero sympathy for you here. Did you not expect this? I mean, you spent millions and millions lobbying the federal government to move towards charter schools and to abandon public schools. You want to privatize public education. Did you not expect that as education secretary, you would be a divisive figure? So I'm sorry. Spare me. Nobody feels bad for you, Betsy. Nobody. You reap what you sow. You're the one who wanted this position, and you didn't think that, you know, buying this position and bribing politicians to give you this position uh, would be a problem? Ridiculous. Now, she decided to bemoan the criticism that she's receiving and said that, you know, my critics, they want to make my life a living hell. She said, we've seen enough written that they want to make my life a living hell. They also don't know what stock I come from. I will not be deterred from my mission in helping kids in this country. Now, when she says helping kids, she's talking about helping well-off kids and helping the elites because she wants to privatize public schooling. Do you think that's honestly going to help kids? And this is what she said. I expect there will be more public charter schools. I expect there will be more private schools. I expect there will be more virtual schools. I expect there will be more schools of any kind that haven't been invented yet. Again, she's in charge of public schooling. She's against public education. So when she talks about how activists want to make her life a living hell, she has it completely backwards. She's trying to make our lives a living hell and we're trying to stop her from doing that because if you take away public schooling as an option if you privatize public education the consequences of this i can't even imagine it, it would be a catastrophe and look if you think that your first week as education secretary has been difficult you haven't seen anything yet because grassroots activists will work to undermine and oppose you at every turn. Now, it's not just the grassroots activists that are against Betsy DeVos's harmful agenda, it's teachers. U.S. Uncut explains, after visiting Jefferson Academy, where she was initially chased out by protesters, DeVos commented to right-wing blog Town Hall that the faculty there seem to be in receive mode. They're waiting to be told what they have to do, and that's not going to bring success to an individual child, DeVos said. You have to have teachers who are empowered to facilitate great teaching. Jefferson Academy's teachers did not agree with DeVos's analysis of their teaching methods, and neither did other public school officials in Washington, D.C. community. The school's official Twitter account shot down DeVos's allegations in a devastating 11-tweet thread that defended their faculty as top-of-the-line educators. They 
stated, JA teachers are not in a receive mode unless you mean we receive students at a second grade level and move them to an eighth grade level. So this is what Betsy's trying to do. She is trying to communicate to the public that, you know, she's visiting all of these public schools and they're failing. They seem like they don't know what to do. We have no teachers who are pushing for innovation. So once she gets you to think that public schools are failing, then she's going to get in and try to push for charter schools and private schools so that way her rich friends can make money off of it. So in the end, Betsy DeVos has a very harmful agenda, but we will be vigilant and we will watch everything that you do, Betsy, because you will not get away with trying to privatize our public schools so that way your rich friends can make money off of us. Bullshit, it's not going to happen. So the Environmental Protection Agency is probably one of the most important governmental agencies because this agency is supposed to protect the environment from industries like the oil and gas industry where they want to pollute and destroy the planet. Now, we have Scott Pruitt, who is now the EPA chief, and he is a climate change denier. And it was recently revealed that he's actually in bed with the industry that he's supposed to be regulating. So the Huffington Post explains, during his time as Oklahoma Attorney General, Scott Pruitt, the newly sworn in Environmental Protection Agency chief, forged an alliance with industry players to fortify oil, gas, and utility companies' legal challenges against Obama-era regulations that they said amounted to a war on carbon, according to more than 7,500 pages of emails published Wednesday. The emails reveal a chummy relationship between Pruitt and the companies whose pollution he's now tasked with reining in. The document dump sheds new light on Pruitt's frequent strategizing with Devon Energy Corporation, the Oklahoma City-based oil and gas giant. Pruitt's ties to the company, uncovered in a similar email dump published in 2014 by the New York Times, became a flashpoint during his confirmation process. In particular, critics railed against Pruitt's 2011 decision to allow the company to write a three-page complaint to the EPA under his letterhead. In 2013, Pruitt's office solicited feedback from the company before suing the Federal Bureau of Land Management over proposed rules to curb emissions from methane, a potent natural gas. In a victory for Pruitt, other state attorneys general and the oil and gas lobby, a judge struck down the regulation last June. The emails also show Pruitt was in contact not just with individual companies, but with fossil fuel industry groups as well. Pruitt met with lobbying group American Fuel and Petroleum Manufacturers to discuss ozone limits and the renewable fuel regulations in 2013 in Washington, D.C. Pruitt made his name suing the EPA 13 times, repeatedly joining oil, gas, and coal players, including Oklahoma Gas and Electric and the Domestic Energy Producers Alliance, an industry-backed group in filing lawsuits to stop federal regulations. Pruitt championed the rights of ExxonMobil Corp. in investigations into whether the oil giant committed fraud by covering up evidence that burning fossil fuels changes the climate. During his confirmation hearing, he claimed he was unsure how much lead was unsafe for human consumption. Between 2002 and 2016, he received more than $300,000 in donations from the fossil fuel industry, and even more money went to a political action committee and a super PAC that paid for the former Oklahoma Attorney General's trips to Hawaii and New Orleans. The newly released emails reveal a close and friendly relationship between Scott Pruitt's office and the fossil fuel industry, with frequent meetings, calls, dinners, and other events, said Nick Sergey, research director at the Center for Media and Democracy, the watchdog group that sued to release the emails. So when progressives talk about the system being rigged, 
This is what we mean right here. You have someone who is bankrolled by the oil and gas industry, who's friends with people from the oil and gas industry, who has dinners with them. He's now controlling the governmental agency that's supposed to rein in the oil and gas industry. This is a rigged game. And I think that when you talk about how close he is, I mean, the relationship basically between Scott Pruitt and the oil and gas industry, it's indistinguishable. Their positions are exactly parallel. He agrees with everything that they do and thinks that they should be able to pollute the environment and there should be no checks on their power. This is unbelievable. I think that we need to launch an investigation into Scott Pruitt because this is corruption. You know, he might be doing things legally. He might be taking these bribes legally through super PACs. But best believe this is a form of legalized bribery and this is corruption. I do not approve of anyone, Republican or Democrat, who is in bed with the corporations and the industries that they're supposed to be regulating. It's not right. And I think that overall, this is really a bombshell of a finding because these are companies, the oil and gas industry, they want to destroy the planet. They want to lobby the government to not only allow them to pollute, but they want them to not push for renewable energy sources because that would cut into their profits. They're destroying the planet because of their profits. We're not seeing any of this profit. I'm not getting any money because our planet that we all share is being destroyed for all of us. Yet, only this industry is benefiting from it. I don't know what to say about this. This is something that I think is one of the most grotesque things about Republicans and Democrats. They're all in bed with the industries that fuck us over. I mean, look at how Democrats like Barney Frank, he was tasked with regulating the financial services, services industry and he was taking money from them. And now we have an EPA chief who was taking money from the oil and gas industry. He received $300,000 and allowed him to basically run his office when he was attorney general in Oklahoma. It's maddening, and I think that everyone should be in Scott Pruitt's office every single day protesting this idiot because what he's doing is dangerous. If you're choosing to allow these corporations to continue to pollute and destroy the planet, you're playing a dangerous game. You're choosing profit over the habitability of our planet. Scott Pruitt is legitimately a bad person. You know, I try to refrain from making moral judgments, but I think that this is something that we can all just subjectively state. He's a bad person. A terrible person and Donald Trump is a terrible person for nominating him and anyone who voted for this idiot is also a terrible person and they're culpable in destroying the planet. During his presidential campaign, Donald Trump was the only reasonable Republican when it comes to the issue of transgender rights, because in response to a question he received about an anti-transgender bathroom bill that North Carolina codified into law, he stated this. He said North Carolina did something that was very strong and they're paying a big price. There's a lot of problems. Leave it the way it is. North Carolina, what they're going through with all the business that's leaving, all the strife, and this is on both sides. Leave it the way it is. There have been very few complaints the way it is. People go, they use the bathroom that they feel is appropriate. There has been so little trouble. So what he was saying there to kind of decode caveman speak is that, look, North Carolina is trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. And as a result, uh, they are catalyzing this huge wave of backlash from businesses that are pulling out of the state because they don't like that they are creating anti-transgender bathroom bills that are discriminatory. So he actually received backlash from his Republican colleagues. Uh, Ted Cruz called him out for this, and I defended Donald Trump from attacks that Ted Cruz was trying to wage against him for daring to be reasonable. Now, the problem is that even though Donald Trump said that during the campaign, well, currently, as president, he did a complete 
180. So Reuters explains that Obama had instructed public schools last May to let transgender students use the bathrooms matching their chosen gender identity, threatening to withhold funding for schools that did not comply. Transgender people hailed the step as victory for their civil rights. Trump, a Republican who took office last month, rescinded those guidelines even though they had been put on hold by a federal judge, arguing that states and public schools should have the authority to make their own decisions without federal interference. About 200 people gathered in front of the White House to protest against Trump's action, waving rainbow flags and chanting, No hate, no fear, trans students are welcome here. So let me reiterate what's happening here. A portion of the population that is the most vulnerable transgender students who are at a much higher risk than their uh, cisgender and heterosexual peers for suicide, he is saying that the federal government should not be protecting these individuals. He's saying that states like Texas who want to discriminate against these students and open the door to marginalization and bullying, well, they should be allowed to do that. If the federal government isn't going to protect people who are the most vulnerable, then what good is the federal government? I think that students of all people should be protected. Transgender students, they just want to use the bathroom as the gender that they identify as. But yet, we have some states, some red states, where transgender students are literally getting bladder infections because they have to hold because they're too afraid to use the bathroom because, you know, if they use the bathroom of the gender that they identify as, somebody might think, oh, well, this is a pervert who's trying to creep on me. This is a boy who is wearing women's clothing and he wants to you know he wants to sexually assault me so that's one aspect of it but i mean if you're transgender and you go to the bathroom of your biological sex well then you're going to get picked on by the men in the bathroom they're going to say oh well you know look at you what are you doing in here you're a sissy so i mean you're just opening the door for discrimination either way and it should be up to the transgender student as to which bathroom they have and this is so frustrating that you would withdraw federal protection, even though it, it, you know, it was debatable whether or not it would stand because it was going through the courts. What is the point of doing this? It's arbitrary. The federal government should protect people who are at risk to bullying, to suicide. I, I just, I don't get it. I don't get what statement you're trying to make, but it's really sickening. And I think that Donald Trump should be ashamed of himself. And to all the Donald Trump cheerleaders who claim, uh, you know, they try to challenge me when I talk about how Donald Trump isn't actually a friend to the LGBT community. Now you guys can kindly shut the fuck up because the fact that Donald Trump held up an LGBT flag means shit to me. It means shit. I think that you can talk to talk. That's fine. But you have to walk the walk. Donald Trump is not walking the walk. He is an asshole. And this proves it. The cost of insulin has skyrocketed since 2002, and this really shouldn't be the case because the patent for the drug expired a really long time ago. So what should be happening is that consistently the prices for insulin go down. However, conspicuously, all the drug companies that manufacture insulin, they all seem to raise the price at the same time. So this kind of reeks of collusion. It seems as though they're engaging in a really shady practice known as shadow pricing, where they all agree to fix the price of a drug and then raise the price of a drug all at the same time, so that way the people who depend on this drug, they have no choice but to buy the drug at the, uh, at the really high price. It's a grotesque tactic that pharmaceutical companies do, uh, and Bernie Sanders is onto them, and he wants an investigation to 
determine whether or not they actually are engaging in this really disgusting practice. So PBS explains, in his latest attack on the pharmaceutical industry, Senator Bernie Sanders has asked the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission to investigate three insulin makers for price collusion. In a letter sent Thursday, Sanders and Representative Elijah Cummings referred to a pattern in which prices for insulin sold by Eli Lilly, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk often rose in tandem over several years. The lawmakers expressed concern that the drug companies may have been coordinating their pricing and, as a result, driving up the cost for millions of Americans, including both patients and taxpayers. Their letter cited a recent analysis that found the cost of insulin more than tripled, from $231 to $736 a year per patient between 2002 and 2013. Meanwhile, since 2009, the lawmakers pointed to 13 instances in which the prices of Sanofi and Novo Nordisk insulin brands rose in lockstep. They said Lilly did the same. The practice is known as shadow pricing and was first reported by Bloomberg News. The original insulin patent expired 75 years ago. Instead of falling prices, as one might expect after decades of competition, three drug makers who make different versions of insulin have continuously raised prices on this life-saving medication, the lawmakers wrote. In numerous instances, price increases have reportedly mirrored one another precisely. Now, the companies that actually sell insulin, well, they heard about this accusation and they were just outraged. They thought, us? Come on, are, have we ever been known to rip someone off? It's not like we're profitable or anything. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's funny that they're outraged at this accusation when it's very plausible when they've done this before. Drug companies rip people off all the time and they are consistently rewarded for it. So just to give you an example as to how this is the case, in 2016, the pharmaceutical industry was among the top 10 most profitable industries, according to FactSet. And do you want to know where they sat on this list? They sat at the top. Number one, so generic pharma raked in 30% net profit, and this was just in 2016 alone, and name brand pharmaceutical companies saw a 25.5% increase overall. We're talking about billions of dollars in profits just in one year. So forgive us for being skeptical when you claim that you're not engaging in shadow pricing. You're all choosing to raise the price on this life-saving medication at the same time. That way there's no competition and consumers are forced to buy it. They have no choice but to be gouged by you guys. And to me, I feel like this is a special kind of evil because you're not raising the prices on food, which would still be horrible. You're not raising the prices on technology. You're raising the prices on a drug that people depend on to live. I mean, I mean, if you're someone with type 1 diabetes and you've had it for a while, you probably couldn't go as long as two weeks without insulin. So they're giving people no choice. There's no competition. They're making sure that there's no competition. They're raising the prices and they're telling these people effectively that if you don't pay this extra price, you're going to die. Too bad. Deal with it. And then when we call them out, they say, well, how dare you lodge these accusations against us? This type of read is incomprehensible. And the CEOs of these drug companies, I don't know how they sleep at night. I really don't. This is a really, you have to be really evil as a person. You have to be really shitty as a human being to sleep at night after your company is working in tandem with other companies to raise the prices of people who have to have this drug. The U.S. government should be fighting these companies. We should be negotiating with drug companies like Canada does to bring the prices of prescription drugs down. But they don't want to do that because they donate to the politicians. They bribe politicians. And in turn, we continue to be ripped off. 
It's so sickening. I mean, we live in a really sick society where we put profit over the lives of people who depend on these medicines. It's so gross. Like, this is disgusting to me. Again, I don't know how the CEOs of these companies sleep at night. Record profits, and you can't bring down the prices on drugs that people need to survive. It's deplorable. Well, that's all I got for you guys in this episode. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, I want to send a thank you to everyone who views every single week, who watches every single segment that I post to YouTube. You guys are great. And, you know, to see how much people are sharing the videos, thank you so much. That really helps us. And if you really believe in the message uh, that I'm talking about and the progressive ideals that I'm espousing, you can really help us out by sharing our video, by liking our video. And we are approaching 100 thousand subscribers that's insane to me i don't don't even know how to process it a hundred thousand subscribers so this just shows that the progressive message is strong and you can help further that by not just sharing my videos but i mean sharing any progressive message which is what i care about share secular talk share the young turks share tim black we need to get the progressive word out there it's time that progressives we actually speak out more than we used to because i mean we used to allow the democratic party to do what they want but it's our turn now we are done bowing to the uh, political establishment so look i'm gonna go on a tangent here but (laughs) the bottom line is that if you watch the show thank you so much for supporting the show i will see you guys next week have a good day 